Overcoming Barriers to Innovation and Creativity, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today we're talking about something I think both excites and frustrates people, innovation and creativity. Jonathan Fanning is an author, entrepreneur, and public speaker who talked with me about overcoming the barriers, which we all know are significant in healthcare. But before we get to that interview, let's hear what's happening in healthcare finance news. Here's HFMA Senior Editor Nick Hutt and HFMA Policy Director Sean Stack. Hey, everybody. Periodically in this segment, we just take a big picture look at the financial and operational trends that are manifesting in the hospital industry. For the most part these days, it's not a happy topic to discuss, but we'll dive into it anyway. Health Affairs just recently published an essay by two leading health economists, basically just looking at implications of ongoing trends for the industry. You can find that article in the show notes, but for the most part, they foresee a very difficult period ahead, especially for areas and markets that already have limited access to healthcare, such as rural regions. They could be looking at the loss of key service lines or even the closure of hospitals. So, Sean, we've talked several times about the underlying issues here, you know, labor shortages, labor costs, supply costs, patient volumes that continue to be erratic and are vulnerable to economic trends such as a potential recession. But how much hope can we hold out, do you think, that the industry can emerge from the pandemic somewhat unscathed? Obviously, parts of it weren't exactly thriving even before the pandemic. Right. I think a lot of community and high dish and and rural hospitals were struggling, of course, before the pandemic. But this is a environment that has extended almost to all healthcare facilities, not all, but I would say the vast majority of healthcare facilities we're seeing and hearing from our executives are more stressed than ever, operating on razor thin margins at best. You know, like you said, Nick, due to vastly increasing labor costs, um, not just in nursing, but across the board, lots of folks retiring during the public health emergency period and then having a hard time replacing those folks. And then keep in mind that just inflation, overall inflation in the U.S. period has really impacted interest rates, has really impacted real estate. So a lot of hospitals and provider networks lease space for their hospital space, for their outpatient clinics and offices. And those contracts are up for renewal and they're seeing really steep increases on leasing rates and rent. So it's really forcing hospitals and the hospital executives to sharpen their pencils and really take a closer look at what their strategic focus is going to be over the next two years, because we don't see this going away, at least not for the next year, as inflation continues to soar. There's some hard decisions to be made here. I agree. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Yeah. And thanks for that perspective. The thing is, you know, certain labor trends are moving slightly in the right direction. I know that Fitch reported that quit rates dropped by almost a percentage point to 2.3% during a nine-month period ending in August. But as far as the type of fundamental shift that is likely needed in order for more hospitals to attain the type of margins they envision for themselves, that doesn't appear to be in the foreseeable future. There's been a structural shift, and and you touched on this, especially in the labor market. So hospitals may have to be prepared for significant shortages for a long time to come. And the required responses in that scenario would be kind of a revamp of clinical operations and care delivery 
to require fewer human resources and, and similar changes to other aspects of an organization, such as the revenue cycle. But there's no set template for how to do any of that and how to pull it off without a hitch. Uh, you can look to other industries and maybe new entrants into the healthcare industry, but the hospital sector is a whole different ball of wax to use a, a rather tired cliche. Sean, is there anything you'd want to add either from your own observations or based on uh, perspectives of HFMA members? I know you're in touch with our membership base frequently. Yeah, interesting that you you bring up Fitch because we have Fitch coming in to speak with our executive councils later this week on Friday about the economic outlook for healthcare over the next six months to a year and talking to our executives, our CFOs in that group about what's going on in the market and what the expectations are there. So that is definitely something that our members are really wanting to focus on as we go more to virtual meetings to kind of control cost. I mean, hospitals are even tightening the belt on their travel expenditures to just try to save money in any way they possibly can. And, you know, you're right. I, I think that many of these cutbacks and underpayments, if you will, for Medicare and Medicaid, as those rates tighten up as well, because keep in mind that the Medicare trust fund is also in trouble. So the feds are tightening appropriately wherever they feel they can tighten. And of course, that's making our jobs even harder as healthcare providers to operate under those even stricter payment structures, which aren't even in many cases paying cost. But in those small rural areas and those small community hospitals where, you know, they've been operating on a razor thin margin for years um, because most of their folks are older, sicker, and poorer than average. They're even more dependent than ever on Medicare and Medicaid rates. And now that those are not keeping up with inflation, you know, that's a grim outlook for those community hospitals and those rural hospital settings. So we're really focusing on getting them as much help as we possibly can. These are trying times and we'll definitely be watching to see how it all shakes out. So thanks everybody for listening. We'll definitely be keeping you apprised of all of the latest happenings as these trends you know, play out in upcoming months and beyond. Also, tomorrow is election day. And while there aren't any huge repercussions, I wouldn't think based on the outcome of the House and Senate races for healthcare policy, uh, it definitely bears watching. So we'll uh, be taking a close look at that and uh, it might be fodder for discussion on a future segment. So thanks again. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, Nick. Jonathan Fanning is an author and public speaker whose name some of you might recognize. He's delivered keynotes at several HFMA chapter and regional events. He talks a lot about how to overcome barriers to innovation and creativity. And in healthcare, especially right now, there are many, many barriers. Finance issues, workforce issues, supply chain issues. I'm sure everyone listening could name others. But according to Fanning, some of the biggest barriers are the ones we impose upon ourselves. We talk a lot about innovation and creativity in healthcare. And I think any of our members listening would say, yes, we want to innovate. We want to move forward. We want to find better ways of doing things that we're doing and find new things to do. But there are barriers to that. And anybody listening is going to name a whole bunch of them. But tell me, in your view, what gets in the way of creativity and innovation in the workplace and what fosters it? <laughs> Those are two questions we could spend a couple of weeks on right there. I love it, though. Um, let me put it this way. My, my father-in-law retires. He retired a few years ago. And he, he told me he needed to retire because he needed to catch up on soccer. 
you know, because he's a big soccer fan. He, he was born and raised in Europe. And uh, he's like, I, I need to catch up on soccer. And I don't encourage trying to do that because the soccer season never ends around the world. And, uh, you know, he starts getting me to watch some games. And I noticed that a lot of the games end in a tie, right? So at the end of the game, they end up having to do penalty kicks to decide who wins. And in the world of soccer, here, here's how it goes. And this is, this is the creativity gap. This, this both fosters and gets in the way of. A soccer player, Cristiano Ronaldo, right? He lines up. He's, he's, I think, 12 yards, 36 feet away from the goalie when he lines up to kick the ball. 57% of the time he kicks left, 41% of the time he kicks right. The goalie has less than a third of a second to get to where the ball will be. Less than a third. It's about three-tenths of a second because Ronaldo kicks at 80 miles an hour, right? 57% of the time, the goalie guesses left. 41% of the time, they guess right. Now, wait a second. People say, Jonathan, you did the math wrong. No, no. 2% of the time, the goalie stays right in the middle because he knows that a lot of times these penalty kickers, they know he's going to guess. They know he's going to jump left or right, so they kick it down the middle. Only 2 out of 100 only two out of 100 does the goalie stay in the middle. Why? Why? Well, see, Ronaldo could kick it down the middle and score 98% of the time, right? Because the goalie has evacuated. He doesn't. He almost never kicks it down the middle. You know why? Because if he did, the goalie and the goalie guessed correctly, the goalie would just stand there and it'd be like slow motion. The goalie would just wait, smile, catch the ball, and roll it back onto the field and, and be, be thrilled that he just stopped the game-winning goal, right? Why doesn't Ronaldo kick it down the middle? He doesn't kick it down the middle for the same reason most of us have a massive gap between our creativity and our creative potential. If, if he went home after that, back to Portugal, and, and he lost the, the World Cup, he lost the European Cup, he lost the champion, they wouldn't let him back in the country. You know, they'd be saying, Ronaldo, what were you thinking? You're one of the best in history and you kicked it right at the goalie. See, it would be a very creative approach to do that, wouldn't it? Look, the goalie's abandoning the goal 98% of the time. Right down the middle will work, right? And almost all of us, I mean, I work with companies around the world. Almost all of us have creative ideas all over the place. Creative ways to run meetings, to hire people, to hold people accountable, to engage people, you know, to solve a financial problem or to solve a, a marketing or a relationship problem. And, and a lot of us in the back of our head, we're thinking, yeah, but if it doesn't work out, the whole world is going to be saying, what were you thinking? What gets in the way almost always is, is us either personally or culturally worried about what were you thinking? If, if I could start a person from one place, if they wanted to be more creative, if they want their world to be more creative, I would say start playing around with some of the questions you pursue. Make them bigger, make them smaller. Shift them this way, shift them that way. You know, I, with my entrepreneur camp, I asked the question, I started the camp 12 years ago. I've done it with about a thousand kids around the country. And I asked the question of how can I in five days impact a kid's life more than at least one year of their formal schooling does? And then eventually the question evolved. I played around with the question a lot. I said, every single little module that's 30 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, I want every single module to be something where it captivates them and it has the potential to just pick them up and give them a different view of, of the world, of what's possible, 
helps them challenge some limit they've been making up for a long time. I work with a lot of big organizations that have some level of um, <laughs> some level of limitation. And I've spent some time in the military world. And my first TED talk was actually at a, a Navy base. The lieutenant that booked me to speak there, she had created a pocket of excellence in her part of the, the, the military. The military, please trust me, they, they have plenty of things they could point at to limitations and bureaucracies and all the rules and regs and, and financial limitations and staffing. And she, she stole from, I think it's Mike Abershoff who wrote the book, It's Your Ship. She would tell her team all the time, right? And here's a brilliant question to ask people. Pretend it's your ship. What are some of the things that you would, you would change and how would you change them? And then she'd say, pretend it's your ship, but you've got some serious financial challenges. You got to make some changes and you have no money to do. It. All right. Pretend it's your ship and you don't have any resource. You don't have people to do this change. There's got to be a change that can be done without any additional resources. She would shift that question around constantly saying, Let, let's assume there are limits because there are, of course, but it's your ship. If it's your ship, what do you do? You know, what gets in the way? Almost always it's, it's me and you. <laughs> You've talked about some of the, the barriers and the challenges being mental and within ourselves. And some of them are cultural, um, which maybe is means we're subject to the barriers that uh, are within somebody else that they're telling us, no, we can't do it that way. Or the classic, no, this is how we've always done it. And we need to keep on doing that, which is the worst. What's the best way to, if you are self-imposing limits and barriers, some of it's just, it's just a mental game, right? Overcoming them. But what about when you have these things imposed on you, how do you get past those? How do you creatively get past those? Um, is it the same kind of thing? I would say yes to a degree, but not completely. If you want to make progress in any area of your life, there's always, there's always a momentum game that has to be won. Right. I mean, let's say you want to run a marathon and you're not ready to run a marathon yet. That's probably true for everyone. I have a friend. He wants to climb Mount Shasta out on the West Coast. And it's one of those you leave at two in the morning and you reach the top at noon. You know, can you imagine yeah, starting at two in the morning, first of all, and then you're hiking every single step uphill for the next 10 hours? That does not sound like something I would enjoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he says, he says, the other option is you don't make it in one day and you sleep on the mountain. So you end up carrying food and shelter uh, for, for an overnight. And I, so my thought is I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it or if I do it, I'm doing it in the one day. Right. We're not doing that tomorrow. There's no chance we're doing that tomorrow. So we'd have to do some kind of a training process. Right. And the training process, you'd have to win the momentum game. You know, and the momentum game starts with go outside and do a walk, you know, and, and do that every day for a week and then go outside and do a walk and incorporate some hills into your walk and do that every day for a few days or a few weeks or, or, or longer. And in the creative world, it's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. Most of the time, the momentum game, it's not just in your head. It's I need I need to get through ju not just thinking creatively, but doing something that takes some creativity. There, there are a couple of things that you that you mentioned that I hear over and over in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. But one is this idea that you're not going to solve your problem today. It takes time and, mm -hmm. and asking mm -hmm. more questions and more questions and more questions that comes up over and over. And what I hear a lot of 
when I talk with members and the organizations that we work with is what people want to do is sit down and say, okay, this software isn't working or whatever. It's not doing what we want it to do. We need to buy a new software. Here's one (laughs) without thinking about, is this going to fix what we need to be fixed? Is it a wise expenditure of the funds that we do have to to solve this problem? Or is there something else that we can do? You can't fix things right away. You have to ask more questions. You have to figure out what the problem really is before you try to solve the problem that you think you have. Yeah. And I, I constantly challenge people and myself to ask some questions that are small progress, but sometimes ask a question that's massive progress. You know, like to go back to a sports analogy, like every now and then in football, every now and then you throw it deep. You know, you're just like, you know what? We're not trying to get three yards this time. We're trying to get the whole length of the field. You know, like I have my kids in my entrepreneur camp ask a question of who's one one contact that, wow, if you made that contact, your business idea goes through the roof. You know, who's one person like that? Um, and, and we do an exercise with them. I, I, I call it like kind of a building courage boot camp where I'm like, think of five things like that, that would, wow, they would change your world if you were able to do them, but they take some guts to do them, you know? And then, and then, you know what, we're going to pick one and we're going to do it. And it's funny because they, they don't have a problem coming up with the things, <laughs> you know, if I, if I were able to get this connection, you know, or if I were able to do this, I'm like, okay, go on, go on LinkedIn and let's send a message to that person. And they look at me like, Oh, well, yeah, mm, I don't know. I don't know. So it's, it's sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. I, I can't help thinking about a cheerleading coach that I know who mm-hmm. his, his program is community service first, cheerleading second. And I, I spent not too long ago, I spent about two hours talking to him and he talked about cheerleading for about 30 seconds, but they go all over the country doing community service things. And the girls in this cheerleading group are the ones who drive everything they do. He's just kind of the adult who makes the call and gets the bus and all the things that they need to to do. And a number of years ago, the girls came to him. They're in New Jersey. And they said, we want to visit all of the 9-11 sites in a day on September 11th. And he said, do you know how far away those things are? That's impossible. But they have a saying in their cheerleading group. When we hear that it's impossible, we do it. Mm. So for 10 years in a row, they got a bus. They left New Jersey at midnight. They went to New York. They went around to Pennsylvania. They went to D.C. and they went home. I love that. 10 years in a row. I love that. I, I absolutely love that. It reminds me of there's a question I spend a lot of time with. It's very related to this. And it's how can I how can I make this more meaningful? I was in a car accident um, 20 years ago now when I was four years old, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was Western Pennsylvania, Interstate 80, warm day, cold night, black ice, and the car started sliding and two tractor trailers obliterated my car. You know, and my, my older brother, his skull was shattered in the accident and they had to helicopter him to Pittsburgh to work on his brain. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you, we, get, we get wake up calls, don't we? I mean, we all get wake up calls. I call them like frying pan moments when the world hits you over there with the frying pan and you're like, ow, you know, and then sometimes you go back for more or the same frying pan hits you two years later. Um, but one of the wake up calls I got from that is that we thanked two surgeons and two nurses for saving my brother's life. And it took me, I don't know how long before I realized that 
it was it was more than two surgeons and two nurses. You know, it was the helicopter crew that airlifted him. Oh, it was the maintenance team that made sure that helicopter crew was ready to go. It was the software people and the logistics people behind the hospital in Clarion, Pennsylvania, and the hospital in Pittsburgh, right? And it was the admin and it was the finance, you know, and I, I forgot to thank them, you know, and so that one thing I would absolutely say to the people that do what you do, I could be better at saying thank you and, and maybe, maybe so could you. You know, you want a game changer every Friday morning, write down one person you could thank for the impact they had in your life. Game changer. And it's it's a ripple effect you can't measure. Well, this is definitely, I think, a good note to end on. Jonathan Fanning, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, this has been great. And I hope that everybody listening, if they're listening when we first come out on a Monday morning, you're inspired for your week. Or if you're listening later, you're inspired for whatever is to come. But thank you so much for joining me. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Erica. And thanks to all of you for serving and leading. I appreciate it. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is the Director of Content Strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. If you like the content of today's podcast and you want more like it, consider subscribing to our leadership newsletter. It comes out on the third Tuesday of the month and it's full of great insights for current and future leaders in healthcare. You can sign up for it by signing in at hfma.org and clicking my communication preferences. And if you wanna communicate with our team, reach out. Our email address is podcast at hfma.org. Good luck finding a Easter egg out of that mask.